This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Good morning, everybody. My name is Simon Carone. I'm host of the YouTube channel and Educated Economist. I was invited here today to speak on my insights into the lumber industry and the breakdown of that supply chain. I'd like to thank George Gammon for inviting me here today. Not only am I on stage with some of the most brilliant minds in economics, but if this event was to have taken place in Portland, Oregon, I may not have been able to afford the tickets to get through the door. So that makes being here on stage today extra special for me. Thank you very much, George, for this invite. Let me give you some of my background. I'm not a banker. I'm not a financial advisor. Don't do real estate. Don't have investments don't have businesses. I do not come from a family of wealth, and I have no formal education in economics. I am literally that guy down at the lumberyard. The only difference is, I have an incredible obsession for studying economics. I graduated high school in 1995 with a just over failing grade point average. I moved into an apartment, that night I moved into an apartment with my girlfriend Sarah. A few years later I married Sarah. And I am still married to Sarah today. Now, like a couple of kids, when you're in your 20s, we really had no clue. We did not pay attention about saving for the future or planning for the future. In fact, for me, saving was holding on to enough money so that you could buy a bag of weed before the next payday. We were really clueless. And um, when you work in a small town, a small community, and you work hard... You kind of get known for being dedicated hard workers, and we got paid well. She uh, attended bar, and I was working construction, and you know, life was pretty easy for us. Uh, early 2007, we were in our early 30s, and Sarah comes to me and she says, I'm pregnant. And I'm like, oh, oh, okay. Um, I guess we got to buy a house. So... A few months later, we signed a deal on a house, and I tell you, when you're like new parents and new homeowner, and kind of have like this bright future ahead of you know, you're really excited, and uh, and we were we were pumped. We were we were looking forward to uh, you know to having the starting this family and moving into this house, and um, you know, a few months go by, and you kind of realize, man. Um, being a homeowner is not, not exactly easy, is it? Like, you know, there's a lot of maintenance costs and the heating bills. And When my construction job took me further away from the house, I mean, there was a lot of commuting costs and stuff that went into, into things. And, you know, things were tight. You know, the birth of my son and a new baby, you know, it was, it was a bit of a tough time. And, uh, you know, this is 2007, so... You know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, recession and housing market stuff, but I really wasn't paying much attention um, at the time. And, like, this huge storm had ripped through the Pacific Northwest and, like, blew every tree over and half the roofs off of, 
you know, half through the roof off of half the houses. And there was a lot of like rebuild from that. So my construction job carried me along for a couple of years. I didn't really notice like a housing market downturn or recession because like for one, I didn't really have much of a clue. And the other, I had plenty of work. So I just kind of figured, you know, this recession is just going to bypass us. We, you know, it's, it's not going to, I'm not going to be affected by it. And, um, of course, you know, that, that wasn't the case at all. And by the end of 2009, I, uh, I knew, I knew things were going to get pretty tough for me because, uh, you know, I was having trouble finding work and, you know, bills were getting tight and they're starting to pile up and sometimes, and I just knew that it was, it was, it was going to be tough. And so I go to my buddy Curtis I said, hey, Curtis, man, you seem pretty well informed. Um, things aren't going so well for me, money-wise, and I have some some money that I've been stashing for my kid. Anytime anybody had ever come to me and said, hey, man, this is for formula, this is for diapers, you know, this is some money for your kid. I took that money and I stashed it in an envelope. What do I do with this money, man? Do I start a savings account or something with it? He says to me, he goes, well, if that was my kid's money... I needed a place to put it, I'd be putting it into silver. Silver? Why silver? And he kind of goes on and explains a bunch of stuff, but the only thing I really remember him saying was, if you don't hold it, you don't own it. I had no idea what that was supposed to mean. But I started doing a little research into silver, and like trying to figure out you know, what it is that I could do to buy silver. You know, punching silver coins or something into the computer, and I would come up with these sites that were trying to sell you like these graded coins or these rare coins or something. And I was just really nervous about buying shiny tokens that weren't going to be worth anything. And so I was very leery about uh, about buying in. But um, I knew I had to make the leap. I knew if I didn't do something, I was going to end up spending this money on a house payment or something. So I went down to my local coin dealer and caught some coins. And I bought a single ounce of bullion, a one ounce bullion. And I tell you, whoa, when you finally put that bullion in your hand and you feel the weight, you feel the realness, and you think about the 6,000 year long history as a monetary metal and you think about all the industrial uses to it, and finally I kind of understood what he was talking about. If you don't hold it, you don't own it. So now... I'm starting to do a little bit more research. I'm trying to figure out what's going on with the recession, the downturn, why it is that I'm having trouble finding construction work, and I'm still, like, really confused about things. And um, I'm buying silver, like, once a week, every other week, two, three, four ounces. And, and I'm watching a lot of the news, and I, I am having a hell of a time trying to figure out what the hell these people are talking about, right? And it's like as if they were talking in code or something, like... I could understand the definitions of the words that they were using, but the information, like the jargon, the, the lingo, it would just fly past me, and I just wasn't able to absorb anything. You know, and I thought, you know, maybe if I just stood in the room with them long enough, like if I just turned the TV on and just sat there and forced myself to listen to them, that eventually I would just figure it out. Like I would just understand, you know, pick it up residually or something. And it was just frustrating. I remember one day I'm sitting there listening to the to the guys on the news and one of them says mortgage-backed security and I turn my TV off, go over to my computer. What's a mortgage-backed security? Well, I'm reading up. Okay, so mortgage-backed security. Investor wants to buy yeah, mortgage market. Uh, blah, blah, blah. 
Securitize this. Okay, wait a minute. I think I get this. So, if I got it right, like if I simply state this, if I took a box and I put a bunch of mortgages into that box, like mine and everybody else, and a bunch of people's mortgages, put it in that box and then sold that box to an investor, that's like the mortgage-backed security? If I just kind of simply state it? Okay. All right, I think I got it. So I go back over to the TV and I turn it back on. The very next thing I hear him say, credit default swap. Bink. I turn the TV off. I go over to my computer. What's a credit default swap? Okay, wait a minute. I think I get this. So it's like an insurance policy for an investment? So if an investor buys a mortgage-backed security, then they can buy a credit default swap. So if that mortgage-backed security fails, the credit default swap kicks in and makes them whole again. Whoa. Whoa, wait a minute here. I got into this house for $500 into escrow, got $86 of that back with no money down. Now I'm having trouble making my payments. I wonder how many other people are in this position. Next thing you know, now I'm really starting to study. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. I'm learning about the mortgage markets. I'm starting to learn about QE, and I'm starting to figure out what it is that's happening here. Now, I'm again, I'm still really clueless, but I'm starting to figure it out. Like, I'm like, oh, okay, wait a minute here. I'm starting to clue in a little bit. I remember I went back to my buddy Curtis. I'm like, dude, bro, have you ever heard of mortgage-backed securities and credit default swaps? And he says, you know, bro, I think I got a book you need to read. And I'm like, oh, man, you know, I appreciate it and all. You're pretty smart you know and I imagine that like you know you probably have a book that would you know probably be full of some really good information but man I'm like I got this learning disability and reading is very difficult for me and anything beyond like 10 minutes and my mind is just wandering and drifting off and I'm not really paying attention to it I, I appreciate it man but I, I'm not gonna read the book okay and he says well I'm going to bring you this book, and I think that if you take a minute to dive into this book, that you would find that you would be interested in it, and you'll probably read it. And I'm like, oh, whatever, man, if you want to bring me the book, you know. So the next day he comes over, and he goes to hand me this book, and it looks like he's handing me a chunk of 4 by 6 beam. Boom! And I'm like, bro, I'm not going to read this thick-ass book, man. It ain't going to happen. I said, I really appreciate it, man, but there's no way I'm going to be able to get through this thing. He says, that just... You know, give it a minute, dive into it a little bit. He says, I think you'll find that you'll be pretty interested in it, and you'll probably continue to read. Oh, uh, whatever. And I take the book for him, I look at the cover, he says, The Creature from Jekyll Island. I thought, huh, that's pretty interesting. Holy moly, guys. It took me about six months to get through that book, but I did it. I read every page of it, and I guarantee you, man, if it was not for the words that are written down, written down inside of that book, I know I would not be on this stage today. After reading that book, it literally changed my life. I never looked at anything the same, and now I am in full-on research mode. I want to know what the hell is going on. It's through 2010. I have dumped pretty much all my son's money into silver going into 2011, and I'm watching the silver prices run up, and I thought, man, here we are. This is it, hyperinflation scenario, what's coming? $50 an ounce silver, man, everybody should have listened to me. I am so smart. Everybody else is dumb. You know, I didn't sell any silver at $50 an ounce. I didn't sell any at 40 I didn't sell any at 30 I didn't sell any at 20 And pretty soon, all that silver that I had purchased was now worth less than what I had started with with my son's money and cash. Now I'm really frustrated with 
Why does this stuff keep happening? You know, they don't call this the dismal science for nothing. And I was diving into some deep rabbit holes. And over the course of the next year or two, I was like full-on research mode. I would listen to anybody and everybody. I didn't care who was saying it. As long as they were talking economics, I was listening. And I tell you, it was uh, it was about 2013, and uh, I would love to tell you all about it. And <laughs> um, I would love to tell you all about it if I could. Um, but the only thing I really remember was there being a mountain of beer cans behind in the garage and a lot of heated arguments with my wife. I was not doing well. My old man, an awesome dude, he, uh, he comes to me, he says, hey man, I'm gonna be leaving this little country home here. Why don't you think about uh, moving into that country home and getting your stuff together? My wife comes to me, she says, hey, I'm pregnant. Mama, this is not a good time to be pregnant. We are not doing well. I better take dad's offer. Now, I've never taken advantage of family ever in my life, but considering the situation I was in right then, I took advantage of dad's offer, and I left that house, and I moved into that little country home. And I tell you, you know, when you get that second chance... It feels pretty good. You're going to make a new life. You're going to start again, you know, new, and you're going to do it right. You know, you're going you're gonna to do things right. Take care of the problems that, you know, from the other house or whatever, but I'm going to move on here. And, uh, you know, I tell you, you can, you can leave everything that you've ever taken in your life that you didn't want behind. But if you don't take care of them demons... They won't be left behind. It was only a matter of time that they uh, showed back up again. And uh, it had been a couple of years that uh, living in that country home and family being somewhat patient, but eventually, you know, frustrated with your behaviors. And even though you uh, you give up the drink and you you sober up, the damage is already done. So. You finally come to a point in your life and you both mutually agree that you need to leave that house. November of 2017, we move into a house closer to work so I could walk to work. Broken down vehicles, $20,000 in debt on credit cards, collection agencies after me for medical bills. It was, it was tough, you know. It was, it was really tough. And uh, I kept on researching now. I mean, I would be researching all the time, reading articles, listening to interviews. And I would corner people at times. Like, I'd make them listen to me. You know, like, listen to this thing. I learned about the economy or something. And I remember one time I had, uh, had this girl, Brittany, cornered. And uh, I don't know, I think I was talking to her about, like, 
taper or something like that and like Federal Reserve tapering or something and I just remember her like turning to me at one point she goes okay listen dude you need to start a blog or a YouTube channel or find some sort of outlet out there because nobody here understands a damn thing of what you're seeing and you're driving us crazy oh okay right um right Okay, so I took my iPhone 6. I had this used iPhone 6 that I bought for like 100 bucks. I turn the camera on and I do an introductory video to the uneducated economist. I'm back into work, use the works Wi-Fi to upload the video to the channel, and the uneducated economist was born. I had no clue of what I was going to do with this channel. Absolutely none. I just figured, well... Maybe I'll just kind of talk about whatever's on my mind and see if we can start a conversation. And um, I posted a few videos and nobody really watched. Like my mom, my sister, my wife, you know, they they all kind of watched. And uh, I just kind of figured, well, you know, if nothing else, if nobody's really watching, then maybe I'll just use it as my own personal journal or something, you know, just kind of put some articles there and kind of link to some of the things that I was thinking about when I read those articles and just post a video about that. And uh, I noticed it was when I started talking about building materials. Now, I work in the lumber yard. I do retail sales for a living. And I started talking about like how building materials were kind of correlating to the new housing market. And uh, man, I started getting a lot of attention for that. Like people were like, man, dude, I'm, I'm a contractor. I love the information. It really helps me out with some of the decisions that I'm making as far as projects coming into the future. I really appreciate these videos. I had real estate agents coming to me saying the same thing. I was just like, man, you don't, wouldn't believe how helpful understanding what's going on in the building industry and the materials and lumber is to my job. I had people who were working in the, in the woods, like loggers and people in the mill and all these guys who are like in the industry were like dude thank you so much for these lumber videos they're awesome keep up the good work I'm really you know the information is so helpful so I'm like okay so we just kept pumping out lumber videos and I would do you know one two three lumber videos a week maybe I would miss a week but I was pumping out just as much information as I could find talking about lumber and I found that like a lot of people really enjoyed it, but it was when lumber started to take off, when the shortages started to kick in, that my channel really started getting getting attention. And when lumber ran up to 1,700 per thousand, I had 80,000 subscribers on my channel trying to figure out what the hell was going on. And it was amazing, the conspiracy theories that rolled through the comments. I mean, people talking about manipulation and gouging and greed and just, I mean, it just goes on and on. And I'm thinking, well, you know, the prices are pretty surprising. I mean, 1700 per thousand, that's, that's really high. But as far as the shortages go, we here on the Uneducated Economist, we weren't surprised by the shortages. I mean, we saw the shortages coming for quite some time. In fact, I was reporting on shortages taking place all throughout 2019, well before any shortages had ever occurred inside of the lumber industry. Well, I, I was talking about lumber depletion anyway, not shortages, but lumber depletions and curtailments. So now let me give you the real lumber story from what I saw happen. Now we can take 
lumber trade disputes between Canada and the United States. This is a story that goes back many decades. I'm just going to talk about, say, the last 12, 15 years or so and what's happened here in the United States and in Canada. Now, really, it starts with the area of the British Columbia forestry is a very prominent lumber production area. There is a lot of lumber that comes out of this small area, this this BC area. To kind of give you an idea, the United States imports about 20% of their softwoods from Canada. So 20% of the softwoods consumed here in the United States comes from Canada. Of that 20%, 15 to 20% of that comes from the British Columbia area. So it's not like all the lumber in the world, but it's not a small amount either. And the things that take place in this British Columbia area really has an effect on the rest of the lumber market. So now if we take this story back about 10 years, there was a bug infestation that ripped through the BC forest, killing off a vast amount of their trees. What the government had done was gone into what they call salvage mode. They lowered the stumpage fees, which is basically a tax on the loggers or on the trees to cut them. So if a, you know if they cut the trees, they pay a certain stumpage fee. This equates to an input cost going to the mill. So the stumpage fees during the salvage mode have been dropped dramatically. So, and the quotas were, left, were raised so that they could salvage a lot of these logs considering that the bugs had killed them off better than just letting them rot. So all through leading up to 2018, if you go and look at the futures prices, it was a steady rise every single year, nonstop. Every year it got higher and higher and higher until it hit 650 per thousand in 2018. When it hit 650 per thousand, a change took place. All of a sudden, salvage mode came to an end, stumpage fees went up, trade wars were kicking in all over the place. China told the United States, we no longer want your logs, we're raising the tariffs on those. The United States looked at Canada, said we're going to raise the tariffs on softwoods because you're, you know, this dumping thing where, you know, they said that the Canadian government was unfairly subsidizing their lumber and putting an unfair playing field for our domestic mills. So when lumber was at 650 per thousand, the United States hit them with the tariff along with the stumpage fees that were rising. At the same time, lumber prices went from six fifty per thousand down into three hundred per thousand, better than a fifty percent drop. All this together nailed those British Columbia mills. Those BC mills started announcing curtailments in early two thousand nineteen. Those curtailments that were going to last for just a few weeks turned into indefinite curtailments. These curtailments were announced not only just in the British Columbia area, but throughout the entire United States. There was talk of millions of board feet being pulled from production and I was doing videos about this the entire time so all through 2019 we had these huge mill depletions curtailments and indefinite shutdowns there was places up in the British Columbia area like places like one they call it 100 mile and I was reading stories up on this trying to find information and just doing research and I'm reading stories about how families up in this area of 100 mile had nothing else. I mean, these people had trees, mills, logging. That's it. That's that's what they had there. And when the industry shut down, there was nothing for them to go to. 
it was a really sad story. I mean, it was actually heartbreaking listening to some of the people tell their stories about how, you know, how the industry just died on them. So here we had this huge disruption taking place in the British Columbia area with a huge inventory depletion. All throughout the United States, same thing. Reporting on mills all over the United States depleting uh, their inventory, and then all the way into November of 2019, I was even reporting on OSB manufacturers pulling over a billion square feet of OSB off the market. Now, if you're not familiar with OSB, it's a building material, it's sheathing. So if you can imagine like the two by fours of a house being the skeleton, you got like the two by fours, the two by sixes, this is the skeleton of the house, then the sheathing that goes on the outside. This is like the skin that goes on the building before all the doors, windows, siding, stuff like that goes in it. So plywood is a very common sheathing, but OSB, which is a much cheaper product um, and more pro probably more prevalent down in the southern part of the United States, as it is somewhat a water-sensitive material, so like in the Pacific Northwest, plywood is a little bit more popular. But this OSB is like a very popular new construction component. And in November of 2019, I'm reporting on these mills who are pulling up to a billion square feet of production off the market. Now to equate a billion square feet of OSB to like how many houses, I just kind of guessed saying 100 houses per, sh or 100 sheets per house. You know, some houses might use less, some might use more, but you know, I figured 100 sheets is probably fairly realistic for, for a house, you know, as far as how many sheets of OSB you would need. At 100 sheets per house, a billion square feet of OSB would equate to over 300,000 homes. And this was just off of one report that I had done. I didn't count all the rest of the OSB manufacturers out there who may be in curtailments or, you know, shutdowns. I was just reporting on the couple that I had found. So going into 2020, there was inventory depletions across the board from lumber mills, from plywood mills, all the way into the pressure-treated markets. These guys were holding back on production as well. And so when 2020 rolled in and the COVID lockdowns hit, then we had even more mill curtailments, even more inventory depletions. People didn't think anybody was going to do anything. We were locked down. They weren't going to work to manufacture the lumber. Nobody was going to be building. Everybody's going to be locked down at home. Now, I work retail lumber. I work at a hardware store that we sell anything that you need to build a house. And people started coming in looking for paint. Like every customer, every other customer, they're coming in. They're trying to, they're trying to get paint. And we're kind of laughing at it. It was just like, why is everybody coming in for paint? Oh, right. They're locked down. They want to brighten up the walls. They want to, like, you know, have something different to look at. They don't want to be locked down in the same old place. They want to, you know, spruce the place up. They're coming in for pressure treated. They're building fences to block out the neighbor, right? Got to isolate. Rebuilding the deck, you know. They're going to be hanging out here all summer long. They want something nice to hang out on, not the old crappy deck that's been falling apart. You know, they're bored. They want to do gardening, so they're building raised garden beds. And the pressure treated lumber is flying off the shelf. Like, every weekend, it's clearing me out. And I'm laughing about it. Like, you know, it's just like, man, this is the year of the garden. This is the year of the fencing. You know, the year of the, the, year of, the of the decking. So, it was about April. It was early in April. And, uh, and I'm like, I, called him, I go to call my vendor for some more pressure treated. I'm like, hey, man, I need to put a stock order. And he says, yeah, okay, um... 
well, what do you got? And I'm giving them a whole list of materials. Like, okay, well, you're going to probably get maybe a third of that if you're lucky. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, it's just like, well, we're running out of lumber here. I'm like, you're kidding me, man. It's the middle of the summer, dude. How am I going to, you know, I got decks and fences to sell, dude. And you've got to sell me four by fours. You know, I need four by fours, two by sixes, two by fours. You need to send them to me. He said, I can't. I don't know. Well, when are you going to get them? He says, I don't know. It's like, wait a minute, bro. It's April. I got a whole summer full of decks and fences to sell. And you're telling me you can't get me four by fours right now? He's like, yeah, that's what I'm telling you. I'm like, why not? Go get them from the mill. And he says, the mills aren't running four by fours. What are you talking about? He says, they're running two by sixes, two by four plate material. I'm like, just framing? You know, it's like, yeah, essentially, they just want framing material. That's all they're, that's where the huge demand is right now. I'm like, so you're telling me that there was such an inventory depletion and there's such a demand for houses right now as people are leaving like the city and moving out to the country or whatever, that there is such a demand for framing material that that's the only thing that they're running right now. They're not running anything big like four by or beams or nothing. He says, yeah, essentially that's what I'm telling you. Holy moly. Well, go and check out George Gammon's YouTube channel. On May 28th, he posted a video of a conversation that the two of us had together, and I reported to him that scenario, that I am running out of pressure-treated lumber, and I cannot load my yard up with it in preparation of doing all these summer projects, all the decks and fences that you do throughout the summer. I can't get the pressure-treated lumber, and I don't know how I'm going to get supplied with it. I kid you not. It was two, three weeks later after that video was posted on his channel that it's across the board all over the country. People are reporting about this pressure-treated shortage taking place and nobody can seem to find any. And I tell you, I was the first one to notice it because I heard it from my vendor. I was like, I want to go order it and I couldn't get it. Well, unless my vendor was doing YouTube videos, I'm the next one in line. And so when I reported it to George Gammon, it was first. That was the, you guys heard it first on his channel. And after that, it was all over the news. So now here we are sitting in a situation in which that the inventory levels have been completely decimated. Huge buyers, not huge buyers, a huge buying came in from stimulus checks and people locked down at home. Next thing you know, inventory is so depleted that trying to fill that inventory level again is incredible. Incredibly difficult. Now you have to think, this is wood. It's bulky. It's heavy. It's got to, like, you know, you need rails and trucks and equipment to move this stuff around. There is all kinds of, like, mills all over the place. And there's distribution hubs and, you know, rail lines. All this stuff needs to be filled up with lumber again in order for the, the lumber to flow through the system easily. It's like you got to fill the sluices again. And when you have an inventory depletion that took it all from the yards, from the distribution hubs, the mills, all the distribution lines, and it's all just been depleted, filling that in up was not easy. And this is where the ideas of greed and manipulation and, you know, forced holdbacks from production or whatever it was that they wanted to say, I didn't see that was the case. When lumber prices were running up to their highs, Mills want to pump out as much lumber as they can get. They don't want to sit back and say, hey, man, I don't want to sell things at their all-time highs. I mean, <laughs> that's not right. I mean, Mills wanted to push that lumber out. But here's the problem. 
you can tell the mill to pump out more lumber and they could add more shifts and they could, you know, cut up more logs and they could produce more lumber. But it's not just a matter of cutting the lumber up. There's also a process of drying that lumber. And the way they dry this lumber is they put that all, all this lumber into a big room and they seal it up. And then they heat that room up to an incredibly hot temperature and it sucks all the water out of it. Once the water's out of it, it's considered kiln-dried lumber. The only problem with this kiln-dried lumber is it's very popular. You know, once you use it, you don't have to worry about, you know, boards warping or twisting. The house is dried in faster. It's a lot more productive as far as keeping the project moving forward. And there was so only so much space and it takes so much time. And there's nothing you can do to increase that. Now, you can fire up more mills and you could even fire up more kilns. But to build more kilns and to make them work faster or to pump out more lumber, it's only going to work as fast as those kilns can go. And so refilling that distribution network was very difficult as it takes time to produce this lumber and it takes time to dry that lumber and then you got to get that lumber into the system during a time of high demand. Same thing for the pressure treated. The pressure treated has to be dried. Then it goes into a container that they fill up with chemicals, pressurize it. It sits in that pressurized chemical for a while. Then when they pull it out of that container, they actually have to let it sit on what they call a drip pad where the chemical oozes out of the boards and falls onto this drip pad where they collect it and make, you know, make right use of it. But they can't transport that lumber, they can't transport it down the highway until it's done doing its dripping or oozing out that chemical because it's considered a hazardous material. So not only do you have the drying process, the treating process, but then you have the waiting process of just allowing the chemical to come out of the lumber before you can transport it. So between these, you know, limited amount of space and availability and time, it was going to take, it's, it was going to take time, but it was going to eventually fill. Now, what ended up happening is, is that as the prices were running up to 1700 per thousand, you can have two by fours like to to give you an idea of what 1700 per thousand in lumber did for retail typically lumber would be like priced somewhere between three and five hundred per thousand that would put your average two by four somewhere around two to three and a half dollars that would be like kind of a typical range when lumber ran up to 1700 i think it hit 1650 is what it ended up closing out at but when it ran up to that 1650, 1700 per thousand mark, that took retail two by four, eight standard and better lumber that I would typically sell for three and a half dollars to 1350. $10 more per stick than what I had ever normally had sold it for. Now, at 1700 per thousand, you can have a two by four priced at 1350. Doesn't mean you're selling a whole lot of boards at 1350. Inventory levels started to rise. Next thing you know, lumber yards are filled. Distribution networks are filled. Supply lines are filled. And the mills are loaded. Bang! Prices crash. Mill curtailments start kicking in. As early as July of just this year, we have mill curtailments being announced from the British Columbia area. Why? Because these are high-cost producers. And when it went from 1700 per thousand, where they can make a plenty of profit... It runs down to 400 per thousand, and now the input cost is too much, and those mills just could not profit. So they started announcing curtailments. 
between the wildfires that were taking place, the the flooding up in the British Columbia area that knocked out a bunch of their rails and highway systems, and considering the tariffs that they are now in uh, putting on the Canadian softwoods at the end of this month, it left a whole lot of room for speculation. Right now, we have inventory levels that are very tight. We have the British Columbia area that is sitting in uh, higher stumpage fees, not to mention that they have also um, uh, put a uh, higher stumpage fees or on their um, certain part of their forest where they are no longer allowing a vast amount of cutting that used to have taken place. They are now holding back on a lot of that. So their forestry industry up there has been really decimated. And from some of the reports that I was getting from some of the uh, mills and forestry managers up there is that this industry isn't coming back for another 30 to 40 years. So now I think about this, what some, what these mills are going to do, because they're no dummies. I mean, these are big time Canadian, you know, lumber producers. And so now what's happening here is that they understand that this British Columbia area is out of business, essentially, for the next 30, 40 years. And they're going to set up shop down in the southern part of the United States. See, companies like Innifer and West Fraser, these are some huge mills. They understand that if you want to cut or if you want to fish where the fish are, you got to go to, you know, if you're a fisherman who wants to fish, you got to fish where the fish are. And that's where they're headed to is the southern part of the United States. The southeast, southeastern part. Now, there's a glut of trees down here in this particular region of the United States. See, 20, 30 years ago, they had this projection on how much demand for lumber there was going to be going into the future. And so a lot of these plantation owners down there, they started planting these pine trees, figuring that they would come back in 20, 30 years, cut the trees, and retire. Well, now they're ready to cut the trees, and there is a glut of them. Everybody kind of had the same idea. And now here's the issue. These mills that are setting up shop down in this area or upgrading the mills that are already there, a lot of them are going to automation, which means that they want a particular size tree. So it runs through their system more consistently and they know what they have. And these trees are the right size right now. There was a story of a gentleman down there who had planted his trees long before anybody else had. He had been sitting on them for years. He's like, look at my big old trees. I'm going to have so much money off of all these trees. Look at it all. And the mills came and took a look and they said, yeah, your trees are big. They're a little too big. Too big for our automated system. We'll buy your trees, but for pulp price. Man, talk about a devastating story to this poor gentleman. So now I have to think, when these guys are setting up shop down here in the southern part of the United States, these Canadian mills, how damaging are these tariffs when they're setting up shop within the United States? Something to think about. So that's my information when it comes to the lumber industry. But before I let you guys go, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the building industry and some of the things that I see taking place inside of the building industry. I sell building materials for a living. And there is definitely a supply chain breakdown taking place within the rest of the building industry. So now a lot of people were focused in on lumber because the cost of lumber had increased the cost of building a new home by $30,000.
But there is bigger issues taking place right now in the supply chain when it comes to the rest of the building materials. Now, we could talk about siding and trim and roofing and all the other stuff that goes into it, but I just want to take it down to one component and talk about vinyl windows for a minute. Now, vinyl windows, this is a critical component to the new construction market. Without them, you can't continue on with your project. So having your vinyl windows at the appropriate time is a absolute critical you know, part of the logistics of building a house. Anytime that you have a delay on anything, whether it's windows or any part of the, the project, you have a deterioration in profit, you have a deterioration in the health of the house itself or the, the construction of the home. And so having a project that is continuously moving forward in progression, right? So the material is landing there in a steady flow so that the thing can be put together in a regular, you know, in a continuous manner. Any delay to that, and you have issues. So typically when the builders would be building, the framers would be at the house constructing, I'd tell them, let me know when you get to the second story of the house, you know, if it's a two-story two house, let me know, I'll come out, I'll measure the window openings and all over your windows. By the time you're rolling the trusses, those windows will be arriving, you can get off the roof and back into the doing the siding, you can install the windows and circle on the siding. This worked out swimmingly. I mean, this is the way that we, that I would do it forever. I mean, this is how I've always done it. Well, the problem is, is that windows used to take me 10 days to two weeks to get. I could order a window and have it in 10 days. Now I order vinyl windows and it takes over three months to get a vinyl window in. So now instead of the framers telling me, Hey, I'm just about done framing the second story walls. The builder has to order the windows for me, for me, when he gets the permit for the house, that leaves very little room for error and no room for changes. Like you cannot change anything. Like I, I want a smaller one. I want a bigger window. Nope. We've already ordered them. In order to get that to change, you're going to delay your project by three months. Now, granted, every region of the nation is going to be a little different. The region that I am in, I have other people telling me that they are experiencing something very similar in other parts of the country. I could assume that maybe some areas of the nation that maybe they're not experiencing such a lag time. For me, this is the way it is. And for other people, they're telling me some telling me a very similar story. So now I look at these housing starts to completions. And now if you look at this chart, you're going to find that there is a widening gap between the two. There's a lot more starts than there are completions. This makes a lot of sense since the supply chain of building materials has completely broken down and the logistical nightmare that goes into actually completing a house right now is very difficult. So I could see where a lot of builders want to take advantage of these high prices and getting homes started, but getting them to complete is a whole other story. So as long as we have these supply chain issues that are taking place, especially with ones such as the vinyl windows, I can only assume that we are going to have a, even continuing more problems with the supply of new completed homes coming onto the market. So long as this event continues, I would only assume that it's going to continue to put upward pressure on the home prices as the inventory levels stay fairly low. All right. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening to me, Uneducated Economist. You guys let me know.